Today's guest is a game developer who's worked in the industry since 1979, nearly the entirety of the home microcomputer industry. <laughs> he's worked on some of my favourite games, including Return to Zork, and he's worked on what was the first ever home computer CD-ROM title to be released. Thank you for joining us. It's Bill Volk. Welcome, Bill. Welcome. Thank you. Bill, I understand that you left university in 1979 with a BA in physics and astronomy. Uh, and then you were creating games in the same year, in 1979, for Avalon Hill. Was video games what you had in mind for a career when you enrolled in physics and astronomy? Uh, not really. What I was doing, I got hired by Avalon Hill as a playtester in December of 79 when I was at graduate school for astrophysics. What happened is, well, there's two things. One, uh, I had a misunderstanding about a scene in uh, 2001, Space Odyssey, when I was young. There's a scene in 2001, A Space Odyssey, where you're docking the uh, Pan America uh, spacecraft with the space station, and it has incredible computer graphics. And I assumed that's what computers could do. As it turns out, that entire scene was animated by drawings. It was never done on a computer. The computers couldn't do that scene at that time in the uh, 60s. What happened? So that was one thing. I always felt that that would be really great to do. But what happened was in the senior year at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, uh, a, a fellow dorm mate needed uh, another person to take a class in microcomputers in order to have the class happen at the Moore College of Engineering. The Moore College is where uh, ENIAC was built, which was the first digital computer, the first uh, electronic digital computer. And uh, so I took the class, and we actually had access to CPM computers with graphics cards, and I wrote a Lunar Lander game as my project. So... That got me interested. And then when I was at graduate school in Maryland, uh, I saw a, a, an ad for playtesting Avalon Hill games, and I, and I took the job. And then I continued to do games when I was in grad school at University of Maryland and then University of New Hampshire. So I went and did my master's work at New Hampshire. Uh, Avalon Hill had me as a playtester, and I was testing games like B-1 Nuclear Bomber and Nuke, Nuke War, which were sort of text-based uh, simulation games, and I decided I could do a graphics game, and got inspired to do one. Okay, and what was that game? Was that first game for Avalon Hill, or was that for another company? Yes, yes, yep. I did Conflict Twenty Five Hundred. I did three games for Avalon Hill, and the first game was Conflict Twenty Five Hundred, which was inspired by a TV animated show on TV, uh, a Japanese show called uh, Star Blazers, otherwise known as Spaceship Yamamoto. So. What Commodore 2500 was, I played the classic Star Trek game on Commodore Pets at Penn when I, my senior year. Someone had a pet and I could play the game. So I decided to do a multi-ship version where you could ever have multiple people taking turns on the same computer. Or you could just run up to 10 ships yourself and have multiple ship uh, type Star Trek type game. But with names that sort of alluded to Star Blazers and graphics that alluded to Star Blazers. One of the funny things about that game is initially I actually spent my own money and had an artist create what they called Apple II shape table drawings of all these ships in 3D wireframe. And Avalon Hill said 48 kilobytes is too large of a game. You have to get down to 16. So I went back to low-res graphics. So the game has low-res graphics. It's also Avalon Hill's first game for the Atari 800. And we had a prototype Atari 800. We had no manual, so we literally 
peeked and poked to figure out how to do things initially. It was pretty hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So it was released on those Atari 8-bits, but it, it was also released, I believe, on the PET, which you mentioned, the TRS-80 and the Apple II. So what was described right. as the Trinity, the first affordable home computers. Yeah. Did you have a preference out of those three? Well, I, I, for the initial game, I liked the Atari a lot. In fact, I spent a lot of money as a grad student to get an Atari 800. It was that, the fact that I liked the 800, I just liked the feel of it. And the fact that there was a game called Star Raiders hmm. on the 800, which I absolutely loved. I thought it was one of the best games ever made um, of the time. And then later on, I did two more games around Von Hill. The one that was the most ambitious was Voyager 1, which was a sort of wireframe first-person shooter in a maze. Uh, and that game, we did every computer you can imagine uh, uh, first uh, release of IBM PC, TRS-80, TRS-80 Coco, Atari 800 Commodore PET, which actually had vector routines done by someone in Canada, uh, and uh, Apple II. So it was everything. And then later on, years later, I found out that somehow it got ported to some machines in Japan. I didn't even know it existed uh, on, on those machines. So that was kind of cool. And then the most fortuitous game in terms of, like, Good timing and everything else was Controller, which was an air traffic control game. Because we, I was working at a video store in New Hampshire, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and a fellow who ran the video store named Frank Kelly had been a controller in the Navy, and we were just working on a simple little screen of a radar screen because he thought that was cute, good thing to do. And then suddenly Reagan fired the air traffic controllers in the United States, President Reagan, and it became a big deal. And Avalon Hill published that, and that has the... Uh, the best, if you look for the box art for Avalon Hill Controller, it's one of the best box arts I've ever seen. It's, it's gorgeous. But when it came to the Mac, which you mentioned, you uh, worked on the Pyramid of Peril and Mac Challenger. Um, what was yeah, it that attracted you to the Mac? So this was in 1984. Oh, I, I was in the Mac. We, we were at Rising Star. We were a competitor to Apple. Uh, Apple had uh, the Mac and we had the Epson QX10. And I just thought the Mac was brilliantly designed in terms of the whole... Um, quick draw was amazing uh, the interface was great and uh, we literally I took a 128k Mac and we literally came up with the idea for Pyramid Apparel and had it in heat shrink boxes for the first Mac World Show within 30 days it was a crazy development but it uh, like Voyager it borrowed a lot from Voyager it had it had a um, algorithmically generated levels and uh, right now in fact on wikipedia there's a fight because uh i had someone submit <clears throat> pyramid peril as an example of an algorithmically generated game and there's even an, a review of it that says so so in many ways it's one of the first algorithmically generated games it was a 3d maze like voyager but it was shaded and you basically ran around the maze picking up objects finding weapons fighting off demons trying to get to a prize in the bottom of the pyramid so as you went down the, the amount of rooms per level increased because you were going from the top of the pyramid going all the way down, which was kind of a, a cute thing. And uh, it was a, it's a very hard game, and you can play it now because of the Internet Archive, and it's an extremely hard game to beat. It was, uh, and it was good. And then Challenger, uh, no one had done a flight simulator for the Mac. I had gone to the first shuttle launch, which unfortunately didn't happen that day, so I, was in, I, I had some documentation on the shuttle in terms of Glide ratios, which is basically you're throwing a brick out the window. And we basically built this uh, land of shuttle simulator on the original Mac, ran 128K wireframe, and released that. Uh, Aegis was a very interesting company. 
if you follow what happened with Aegis, is after we did the Mac games, we jumped into the Commodore Amiga. Mm-hmm. There's a rather unflattering picture of me on the copy of Micro Times where I weigh literally 120 pounds more than I do now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, basically talking about doing the Amiga. And I did another draw program for the Amiga called Aegis Draw. Um, and that was that. And I worked at Aegis all the way through 1988. And then the rest of my career happened. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I again with that with the Mac titles there, a recurring trend that I found when when looking into your career is is being on the forefront of technology. You know, that was you were right at the release of the Mac then with your games. Fast yeah. forward a few years, um, it must have been on the Mac then. Well, it was on the Mac that you discovered HyperCard that came out in in 1987. Right. Um, I- which yep. is um, well describe HyperCard as I understand it is essentially a database with some bells and whistles. HyperCard, HyperCard is an offering tool that has a card metaphor with fields and text and, and hotspots and a scripting language, which is pretty simple. Um, a lot of people did a lot of things in HyperCard. You'll and what happened? With, so I had done some stuff in HyperCard at Aegis uh, just for fun. And then when I got to Activision, Activision had a division called 10.0, and they had a product called Focal Point, which was a personal organizer, calendar, notes, um, and so and, and a phone book and all that, done in HyperCard mm-hmm. by Dan Goodman, who's a good guy. And the week I got there, there was a, a, a blue box with five floppies on the vice president's desk, Dick Lehrberg. And it was from two guys in Texas, and it was a children's title called The Manhole, a hypercar title. Now, when I did Pyramid Apparel, I had buttons on the screen for going forward, going backwards, turning right, turning left. That's what everyone did. But what I recognized what these two guys in Texas had done is they had gotten rid of all that. There was no buttons on the screen. If you saw a picture and there was something interesting, you just clicked on that picture and something would happen. It was a manhole cover with a little uh, vine coming out of it. You click it, the manhole cover would slide over, the vine would grow. You could go up the vine, you go down the vine, you go down the vine, uh, and you can go into Meet the Rabbit. It was just an incredible set of interactions, and it was the first visual interface, and I recognized the greatness. And those two people were Rand and Robin Miller, and they had formed a little company called Cyan. So I got Activision to publish Cyan's first title, and then Activision had... Uh, spent or or more accurately wasted a lot of money on Compact Disc Interactive. Compact Disc Interactive was kind of a disaster. Uh, and they wanted to do something not to go this. And I said, look, all we have to do is take the manhole and add an entire music track to it. And we had a musician in the house called Russell Lieblick, who was brilliant. And he hired a live string section from the San Francisco Opera to do the music. So we had recorded live music, and I had figured out starting at ages, how to page sound in. So we weren't using CD audio on the Mac HyperCard version. Mm -hmm. You're using chunks of of, uh, 8-bit audio, 22 kilohertz 8-bit audio, and we were able to page it in while we were able to do other other things. So Manhole CD-ROM came out at the very beginning of 89. It's the first, it's considered to be the first CD-ROM title. Uh, We did one more title with Cyan, and then we lost Cyan during Activision's financial turmoils. But what happened... Earlier at Aegis with CDI is when we were doing a big CDI project at Aegis, which never came out. They sent me, they got me insurance, like some ridiculous policy of like $5 million key man insurance. I had a medical test and everything was off. So they sent me to a spa and it basically scared the crap out of me. And ever since then, I've been pretty fanatical about 
uh, eating and exercise, and it's paid off very well. So I, I'd like to joke that Compact Disc Interactive, for all its problems, probably saved my life. And Aegis, too, because Aegis, Aegis was the one who sent me, uh, Dave Barrett of Aegis, the CEO of Aegis, sent me to the uh, spa. So, okay, so Activision, I did the manhole, and then we had a problem, was, was HyperCard only ran on the Mac. So I had started working on a development system with a fellow called David Betts. David Betts had done an, uh, an adventure game system called ADSYS, A-D-V-S-Y-S, which used a tiny scheme. It was similar to what Inform did on Infocom, but it was different because it was, uh, it was tight-sized. The compiler itself was very tight-sized, and it, it could do certain things very quickly, and it was easily adapted to graphics. So we took that. We built a system called Multimedia Applications Development Environment, or MADE, and we got the manhole running on DOS. Then we got the manhole running on Japanese machines, most notably the uh, Fujitsu FM Towns, which I consider to be the best machine of its era, an incredibly advanced CD-ROM machine. It also did the 9801, the NEC 9801. Lovely machine. This uh, is the one with the CD-ROM drive on the front of it, isn't it? It's yeah, yeah, yes. Out. Yeah, really lovely machine. And, and as far as the PC goes, something, for, something lucky happened as well. We were, the PCs didn't have digital audio. The manhole used digital voices throughout the game. I, uh, someone at the Activision, I think it was Glenn Anderson, had written a program that would turn the speaker on and off at any rate you wanted based on a file that had bits. So it would just take the bits in the file and turn the speaker on and off at any rate. And typically people were just taking audio samples, and if it was above 128, they were turning it on. If it was below 128, they were turning it off, running at 22 kilohertz or 8 kilohertz, and it sounded awful. But you could do things like fire, you know, like you could do <laughs> short words and all that. So I had... There was a guy at Penn in computer graphics called uh, the, called Steinberg, and there was an algorithm called the Floyd, Floyd Steinberger algorithm, which was an error propagation algorithm for taking grayscale images and turning them to black and white. This is known as half-toning in the newspaper world. You, you, you see a newspaper picture, and what it really is is lots of tiny dots. So I said to myself, what if I did that for audio? So I took Glenn's program, and then I wrote like uh, the sort of error propagation algorithm. So I took a sample. I took the audio and I resampled it to 128 kilohertz. So I took the 8-bit audio file and interpolated it to 128 kilobits uh, sampling, which is ultrasonic, and then interpolated every conversion and propagated errors. And suddenly, the standard PC was producing audio that was clear and understandable. This was just straight out of the PC speaker without a sound blaster, without yes. any kind of add-on card. Right. And other companies were doing it using pulse modulation, turning the speaker on for a time and turning it off. But you got that carrier frequency, that ringing in the sound. Manhole didn't have that, uh, uh, but it did take over the entire computer. Okay, so that's that's true. It wasn't able to run in background. But Access Technology, who had done the um, the uh, pulse width modulation, was suing everyone in existence who did digital audio on the PC. So Activision went out and patented my stuff. And later on, if you look at the patent where it's cited, it became the basis for the one-bit oversample DAC that was used in a lot of uh, CD audio drives. So that was complete... Yes, complete luck. I had never even done uh, much on the PC other than the uh, time I did uh, Voyager on the PC at Avalon Hill, mostly in basic. So that was a surprise. So we had made, we had done uh, the manhole, uh, and then we started working on digital video, and we got digital video work. One of the uh, curious coincidences is we were working on digital video. I had started doing that at, at Aegis, actually. We had, we, had, we had a demo on Aegis that did a full-screen uh, a video of the Emmy statue, the statue you give for TV awards, rotating on the Mac in full color. It was very tricky. And then when I got to um, 
Activision, I came up with a compression system that compressed all the graphics four to one about, and then used that to create a video compression system that enabled you to do uh, MCGA, you know, mode 13 hex on the PC, full screen video, and also a window video on the Mac. Great story about that. We visit the Apple uh, Advanced Technology Group in 1989 to show them the video on the Mac of something from the space station. They say, quote, why would you do this when you can use a laser disc? That was the actual <laughs> quote. We had digital video, and we wanted to do stuff with it. And, in fact, we used it in a title called Joe Montana Football for the intro. But it sat around gathering dust because Activision ended up in a very difficult situation. Uh, we had lost the bar patent, the Magnavox patent, uh, and had and the CEO of Activision time was Bruce Davis, and he was fighting it. And the judgment came down in the summer of 1990, and our retailers actually shipped back all the stuff we had sent to them back to our warehouse because they believed we were going to go out of business. Now, um, this is another example. Of, I've had really good luck and I have really bad luck. Challenger, for example, was bad luck. I come up with a game called Mac Challenger, and a couple months later, we have the terrible Challenger incident. That's just horrible luck and horrible for the everyone involved. But at, what happened was during the Amiga days, I knew Bobby Kotick. Uh, he had an Amiga publishing company. I, had, I was Aegis. I was the co-founder of Aegis, and we knew each other. So when he came in and took over Activision, uh, I was the only person at a level I was at who was actually still stayed at the company. Everyone else was either left or wasn't retained. And we moved down to Los Angeles in 1992 with 13 people. Now, we had done a title using made, but not digital video, but using the digital audio that was done really rapidly. People actually drew on paper with colored pens to scan it, and that was called The Lever Goddesses of Phobos 2, which was a bomb. I think, I think we should uh -huh. give it its full title, Bill. The Leather Goddesses yeah. of Phobos 2, Gas Pump Girls Girl. Meet the Pulsating Inconvenience from Planet X. Yes. <laughs> there, it was, it was, and it got panned for being too easy. This is extremely important. Steve Moretsky, the guy who had done Hitchhiker's Guide, had done the uh, design, and he's a great guy. And the whole point of this game was to have a fun, easy game, and that was a mistake back then. Obviously, the game was panned as being too easy. Um, and this and was previously, so, this was a sequel to an Infocom game, which would have been a two text, text adventure. Yeah, Infocom, text, Infocom had done two text adventures. Which were notoriously quite difficult games. So if the audience was oh, rolling horrible. over from those horrible. games, they would have yeah, expected a difficult a, experience. But we were lucky to get out. We were literally, we literally were going out of business. And Bobby came in, um, and of course that leads to the question is, uh, I always tell people, you ever wonder why Nintendo allowed Philips to put out uh, a Nintendo licensed title on Compact Disc Interactive? You ever wonder why Nintendo, which was working with Sony on a CD-ROM drive for the Super Famicom, Super NES, SNES, dropped that project? Well, the answer is the bar patent. Bar case. Activision lost the patent, so did the whole, that case, so did a lot of people. Activision, I think, had a seven or eight million dollar judgment. So did Nintendo, and Nintendo worked out a deal with Philips to give Philips the title link for CDI. And also for a time, Nintendo actually was going to use Compact Disc Interactive as the drive for Super Famicom, Super NES, Super Nintendo. They, that's the reason they really dropped Sony. Uh, that's why they dropped Sony. It was, a, it was a settlement of a lawsuit, a big lawsuit. I mean, it, it would have hit Nintendo really hard to pay that out. So uh, Sony decided, hmm, maybe we should build our own video game system. And in fact, my last meeting with Sony in Japan was with the 
the PlayStation group when it was a CD-ROM drive for the Super Nintendo. So I actually got to see that unit. Uh, anyway, fast forward, we're at Activision. Bobby comes in, and, and Lever Goddesses comes out as a failure. Bobby, to his credit, I know people, some people don't like him. He knew what I was up to, and he believed in us, so he let us do Return to Zork. Return to Zork succeeded in many ways because we had Eddie Rumbrauer as a producer, who was a great producer. He had done Earl Weaver baseball. We had great artists. But most importantly, we were driven with a desire to get back at every single reviewer who had panned Lever Goddesses of Phobos 2. We decided to make the game arbitrarily unfair and insanely difficult. And it is. It's considered well, yeah. to be... There so are, there's there a are, scene right at the beginning where there's like a weed plant, you have to... Yeah, plant. plant. And if you don't plant. take it, you're screwed the right two way, hours later. Right <laughs> you pull it out of the ground, it dies later on, and you're screwed. That's not difficult. Fact, That's evil. <laughs> this main system had a tiny scheme. Everything was objects. And so we were like really into object-oriented programs. So it was really easy to do things like create an object for the plant and have it die over time. You know, it was so easy to do all those really silly, sophisticated puzzles. Plus, we had the digital video. Um, we had actors. Uh, we had the game be extremely difficult. With uh, There were some deep interactions. I mean, Return of the Zork did some things that you haven't seen. Like, for example, you had a virtual camera, and everything you saw you could take a picture of, and it would put it in a photo book. You could go to any character and ask them about that picture, and they would say something. You could ask a character about any object you had, and the most crazy thing is there was a virtual tape recorder that recorded every conversation you had with every character, and you could play a character's conversation to another character, and they would talk. So there was this deep interaction, and with the objects, there was this diamond interface which was inspired by something Eddie had seen, where every object could be used in every object. So you had puzzles like uh, feed the cow carrots, milk the cow, warm the milk, drink the milk, be able to see in the dark. I mean, stupid stuff like that all over the place. There are like 4,000 videos on YouTube, most of which complain about the game, but it was the it was a huge success. And well, I have great think- memories of the game because it came right at that cusp. Although the first CD-ROM game for a home computer had come out several years before... For me, this was when it became affordable for me. I had had my first PC, got a CD-ROM drive for it. I think it was a dual-speed CD-ROM. So this was my first experience of full-motion video on a computer uh, in 1993. Um, I never got to enjoy it at the time on the um, the full-motion because there was a hardware card you could buy. Magic card. Yeah, yeah. So that would have been the ultimate way to play it, but I never got to. Um, But this, again, was made with your made system so did you right, have to develop a, that system further since leather goddesses well, I, to accommodate yeah, I, I, I did the digital video codec i did the uh, audio codec uh, i had some people optimize that um we 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 had stuff like animated gif like stuff we had this compressed stuff where you could play video loops and have them hook up with other video loops so the mine car puzzle where you're in a mine car and you have to make decisions about right and left which is preceded by two dwarf miners talking about stuff, and they're doing the old um, sort of takeoff on who's on first. So you have to listen to them and write down the left, right, left, right. They're saying straight, left, right, straight. You know, they're talking to each other. And that's your commands for going through the mine and not getting lost. Yeah, yeah so we had all that. We had um, really sophisticated puzzles. The, the digital video was quite good. And then one of the things that's interesting is the audio compressing was a variable rate audio compression thing that we had come up with. Uh, I had come up with, actually, but other people implemented the drivers, including this eight-channel digital music driver. 
And I discovered that when someone was speaking, the audio compression rate, because it was variable, actually reflected their mouth position. So we had the audio system driving the lip flap when we had the animated characters. So if you didn't have the full CD-ROM version, you got characters whose mouth moved with the audio. That was actually automatically driven by the audio compression system. There was It was never scripted. So that made it possible, all that audio. Uh, Sync on the fly, as it were. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Return of Zork was a difficult and cool title. What's interesting is, and the most ironic thing is, if you remember, I had given Cyan their start. I had actually loved their title and pushed Activision. There's a woman called Sherry Whiteley at the time and myself. We pushed Activision really hard to publish that title because that was completely different mm-hmm. and pushed them really hard to do a CD-ROM version. Cyan did Mist, which was the best-selling title of, the, of all time by when it was released. There's Mist. <laughs> and um, in a most, and one of the ironic things is when I wanted to continue doing deep puzzle-driven titles like Return to Zorak with lots of character and audio interactions, because I was really into the character interactions. I thought that was there were some points there where brilliance was almost achieved. Mm. And they decided to build a more Mist-like title. And that and uh, sort of some, I guess uh, I would say, uh, I felt I deserved more. And then this large, the startup came to me at the FreeDO conference called the Lightspan Partnership. And they offered me to run all of development, all of QA, uh, and move to San Diego and pay me handsomely and give me a big chunk of the company. And I did it. I left Activision to do educational software. Gilman told me at, Act, at Lightspan that he did not want me doing offering tools. He knew I'd spent a lot of time at Activision doing offering tools. He says, just use stuff off the shelf. Don't do an offering tool. Just focus on getting all these titles done. And we had this incredible design process where we had these meetings with artists and they would sketch stuff on paper and the programmers would start working from the paper sketches. It was really thorough and we were building – and because the, the company was funded by TCI and Comcast and Microsoft, the chairman of the company – insisted that everything have like television quality. So they did a, a reading series called Stratus, which is sort of like kids go to visit a teacher at this fancy house, this Victorian type house, get sucked back in the time, the wormhole done by the people who did the show sliders, super special effects, live actors, period costumes, millions and millions of dollars. I think Lifespan spent $125 million building its content. So we had all this high quality content. And I remember Myself and, and the head of programming, Sergio Garcia, at a meeting early on in, two, in 1994 said, you know, maybe we want to build this stuff so we don't have to do all that, so we could have a lighter version for the web or whatever that was just the puzzles and stuff, the games themselves, without all this tight linking in with the digital video, digital video animation, cell animation, everything else. No, 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 no. We're going to be the anchor tenant of cable. Uh, we need to have this quality of stuff. So that was the way it was. And then... By 1995, I realized, oh, my God, it's the same people from Compact Disc Interactive involved with set-top boxes. This is never going to happen. <laughs> this is never going to happen. There was a project in uh, Orlando, Florida called the Time Warner Orlando Project where they used silicon graphics boxes as set-top boxes, $5,000 boxes as set-top boxes in people's homes. This is clearly going to fail. And then Apple finally said, we're not going to do this. We're, we're not in the business of doing this. So I had, at the end of it, Ninety-five. The, the chore of picking how we were going to survive, how we were going to find a platform. And so I looked at Compact Interactive, CD32, 3DO, Sega Saturn, and the PlayStation. And I was at a Sega Saturn 
development conference, and I think it was Romero turns to me and says, Saturn's a piece of crap. This is too complicated. And I like the PlayStation. So in 1995, we did a Skunk Works project to see if we could do what we need to do on the PlayStation. And the hardest thing was text. Had to be a lot of text. Had to be readable. But at Aegis, we had done a product called Video Titler. And I remembered how we got text to work. We had anti-alias text. So we used the same trick, and that worked. But that left the problem of building the titles. We couldn't go out and buy 100 uh, PlayStation offering systems. It would have been way too expensive and too complicated. So I found out that Dave Warhol, the guy who had brought in at, at uh, Rising Star in 1983, he had a simple offering tool that looked like Fortran, uh, which we called Chug. Uh, and it was, it was the language was god-awful. It was completely diametrically opposed to what had happened at Activision. It wasn't elegant at all. It, it had go-tos. It didn't even, it was all like basically statement, 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 but it was designed to support a lot of video game architectures and it was close enough and we were under a lot of pressure. We had to get titles out by the summer of uh, 86 or else our funding people were going to be really upset with us. And so we did. We, uh, we got this, this tools warped enough to do it. We had, you could use PCs to build the title and never had to see the PlayStation. Simple 2D titles, with lots of video and stuff. We got the video working great, and we released eventually 100 optical t- disc titles to the PlayStation for Lightspan that were put in the schools. If you look for them, they're on YouTube. A lot of people talk about how lame they were, but they were designed to do that one thing, and some of the titles, like the uh, Stratus titles and some of the living book titles, are simply gorgeous. The animation work is just beautiful. It's it's, it's stupendous stuff, and they... and um, uh, and it almost made me a very wealthy man. Uh, so I was looking for the next big thing, and the next big thing was mobile games. I, w- I was sold on mobile games and started working on them. But, um, but you, are still, you, are, you are working on a game currently, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. This is interesting what happened. Was, I was reading a story called A Full Life about this young girl who keeps shuffling from different places, being chased down by environmental disasters from climate change. One of my um, brothers is a climatologist and a meteorologist, been following this a long time. It's this frustrating debate on, on the internet. Every time you bring it up, people come up with crazy reasons why it isn't real. So I said, maybe there's a game I could do. And, and I thought about this girl being traveled around and I decided, you know what? I'm going to take Oregon Trail, the gameplay of Oregon Trail, and I'm going to wrap it into a visual novel about climate catastrophe. Set it sometime in the future. Worst case scenario, 80% of the population wiped out from heat and plagues and war. Uh, and just do a, a tale of climate refugees trying to get to Canada 2,000 kilometers uh, and do the entire Oregon Trail thing and do it with all sorts of uh, facts about climate that are woven into conversations. Take what I learned from Return to Zork, but using a visual novel interface because I can't afford to hire actors, so using visual novel-type text, wrap all that up into an Oregon Trail-like thing, and I found a really good uh, visual novel thing. And then I decided... You know, I've got a full-time job. If I try to make this a pay game, it's going to cost me more than it would. So I'll make it a completely free game, give it away, and then I can go to people I know, like Mr. Sanger, and get them to do the work I need, uh, and they'll be happy to do it, and they do it for a, a good price that I can afford. The art team did that. George did that. I have a UI artist. And the, and the product looks beautiful. The music is amazing. Following the trend of the Oregon Trail, this is called the Climate Trail. Is that correct? Or at least the yes, website? The climate Trail. Yep. Yep. Climate, climate Trail and the game is Climate Trail. I have ClimateTrail.com. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and uh, you, the video is a couple, it's like a week old. There's now uh, rain that actually falls. It's falling rain now, and that's just a, a scene that says it's raining. And so you get water by buying water at the beginning or along the way if anyone's selling it, finding water in abandoned stores, catching rain. Catching rain's a big deal. Or just searching for pools of water. Well, guess what? If you drink water that you got from pools of water, there's a chance you're going to give your party dysentery. Yeah, so, yes. Dying of dysentery had to be in there. Have had dying of dysentery. I'm doing the dying of dysentery. It's in there. Dysentery is in the game. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. No hunting, though. There's no hunting. No. There's scabbering. Well, Bill, so, I wish you all the best of luck with that. And I'll, I'll certainly be keeping an eye on uh, climatetrail.com. We'll see you. Yeah, it's ready. And, yeah, theclimatetrail.com. It's also on Facebook. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's 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 a fun project. I, I it's enjoyable to be uh, writing a game again. It's been a while, and uh, who knows? You know, it's uh, it's going to be a lot of it's it's a lot of fun. And I and like I say, it's free. Don't like it? Don't play it. Like it? Play it? No problem. I'll try to get a version that runs on the web as well. There's a there's some tools to do that, and uh, we'll see how it goes. And if it if it if people like it, I will consider doing a Kickstarter to do a full-fledged version because when someone asked me about the climate game and, the, and they said, what would you really like to do? And I go, I'd like to do the last of, of us as a climate game. I'd like to do at that level, but I don't have a hundred million dollars yeah. lying around. So, that <laughs> so I'm going to do an Oregon trail stuff. Again. Excellent. So Excellent. thank you so much. This is Good. so much fun. And thank you very much, Bill, for all your work on, uh, well, the games I loved like the manhole and like thank return you. to Zork. I spent many hours thank playing them. So thank you, sir. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to the Retro Tea Break podcast. If you enjoy this kind of thing, then check out my YouTube channel, Retro Man Cave, or for more podcasts, search Retro Island Diskettes, or see the show notes for links.